So we're very happy to see all of you. And we're especially happy that my wife is here because you don't always get to hear from her. And everything I know about Grihasta life, I learned from her. But she still wants me to say something. So I'll start and then she'll take over and then do a little tag team. We'll see where it goes. And we might even do an exercise. Right? Possible, yeah. So kind of the theme today was understanding the differences between men and women. And I'm still trying to understand women. So I don't know if I'm that qualified to say anything other than they're hard to understand. Um, I think women feel the same way about men. And... um, And I don't, I don't think it's only about understanding the differences. It's more, it's more, I think, about accepting the differences. Because you could understand the differences and think, why do they have to be like that? That doesn't seem right. And I know for myself, as a man, women think in certain ways which don't make sense to me, and I know it's the same for women. And that's sometimes difficult to accept. And to have a relationship, a a beautiful relationship that works, then all those differences which come between male and female and all the differences that just come between individuals, if we can accept them as they are, even if we wish they weren't that way or they don't make sense to us, then everything goes very smoothly. And, and for me, as, as a devotee, that's, it's, it's more or less the essence of our spiritual practice is to be able to accept people the way they are and accept things the way they are. And you know, you all know, they, they, there's a saying like, when a woman gets married, she thinks she's going to change the man into the way she wants him to be. He's not quite there yet, and she'll work on him. Yes? Well, I'll give you, you ladies some good advice. The way he is when you get them is the way he's going to be. You're not going to change him. And you will be frustrated trying to change him, and he will be even more frustrated than you trying to be changed. Now, I can't say that's My wife might say, oh, but Prabhu, you changed. Well, naturally, you change when you grow, but it, it's, it's so many things about me didn't change or they changed in a way maybe that she didn't like or vice versa, and, and we accept that. That's part of who we are. One of the, I think, most common examples that is often given, and you must have heard this, is when when a woman speaks, a man wants to, when she has a problem and, and she speaks, a man wants to fix it, right? Because that's how men are. And the men, the men can't really understand why you would listen to a problem and not fix it. That's how their mind goes. And, and the woman's getting upset and says, well, I don't need it fixed. And I say, well, why are you telling me? He said, it doesn't make sense to them. Like, why are you wasting my time telling me, you know, all day in the office, all I do is fix problems. That's... That's what I do. 
And so, until a man understands, no, that's not the way women work. They don't think like you. They just want you to listen. And, and sometimes it takes a while for a man to understand that. Well, what's the good of listening? Like, we should, you know, why just talk about it? We should do something about it. And then the man has to be explained. No, but that's how, they just need someone to listen. That they're satisfied with it. Thank you for listening. And the man walks away and is like, but you still have a problem and I didn't solve it. And she's like, no, everything's fine. And, and when you're newly married, it, it takes a while to adjust to that. But there's innumerable things like that. And as you go through it, and if you're intelligent and you're smart, you start to see, oh, that's the way a woman does it. Oh, that's the way a man does it. And then the acceptance comes. That big, that big acceptance. This is, this is how he is, this is how she is. So I, think, I think acceptance is also part of respect. And respect is like the essential framework for any relationship. Right? It's like, if I can't accept you the way you are, it's like a sign of disrespect, isn't it? Like something is wrong with you. You don't fit in the mold I need you to fit in. And so when you have a partner if you're not married, you, you may not realize that when you get a partner, you get everything, the good and the bad. They come together as one package. And if you're married, you know that. It's like, oh. It's like, you know, you've lived together while like, oh. I didn't know I get this part with it also. Yes? Right? And so that's the part we have to accept that that comes with it. We have to respect that that's who this person is. And um, I think it's such a, I think the Grihasta Ashram is such a great place to grow because you're confronted with all these things that can really bother you. And it's like, okay, I'm supposed to be a devotee, I'm supposed to be tolerant, I'm supposed to be patient, I'm supposed to be kind, I'm supposed to be compassionate, I'm supposed to be empathetic, understanding, etc. And here's my chance. And this is such a difficult place to do it because I'm so familiar with this person. I can do it with everybody but this one person. This is the person that is most difficult to do with. It's the biggest challenge and therefore, it provides the greatest opportunity to grow, doesn't it? Well, if you're not married, you don't. You would know this, but you could kind of figure it out. So, there's this saying, private victory precedes public victory. Have you heard that? I think that was Bhakti Stephen Covey. Not the poet, you know, but the writer, Stephen Covey, he said, private victory precedes public victory. Like, what you do at home. You master it at home, and then you take it out in the world. And so, we talk about, we talk about respect, we talk about humility, we talk about empathy. This is such a good place to do it. Because sometimes it's so hard to do it in a relationship like this. And if, 
if we can do it here, I think we can do it anywhere. And if we can't do it here, how can we really talk about it? You know, as we share with the public. So that respect, if that's the groundwork, that respect allows us to accept those things which make absolutely no sense to us from the male perspective or from the female perspective. And I don't know from the female perspective um, everything that doesn't make sense to her, but I know sometimes when I'm with my friends and we're joking around, she's, she would say something like, how can you treat him like that? Like from her perspective, that's like so nasty. And I go, no. That's just like this, he doesn't, he likes it, it's not a problem. <laughs> but you're like, you're like punching him in the arm and telling him he's an idiot and it's like, yeah, you can't do that. I go, yeah, that's what we do. You know, so it's like for a woman, it's like you would never do that to a friend. But for a guy, it's like, you know, you see your, hey, look who we came out of, look the cat brought home today, you know, you, you joke like that and they're like, yeah, you know. They don't get offended, it's a male thing, right? So, this is just kind of an introduction to kind of where we want to go with this. And I want to turn it over to Jonathan and see what she has to say. How much time do we have? Because I want to make sure I don't speak too long and leave ample time for questions. Okay. That's before questions or finished? Okay. Oh. Okay. That's 22 minutes. Okay. So you'll let me know when it's time to sh shift to the next portion. Okay, great. Um, so I'm just curious to know, raise your hand if you are married. Okay. So like a quarter of the room and the rest aren't. Okay. So for those of you who aren't married, raise your hand. Don't be shy. <laughs> Um, if you think marriage is going to be like Disney or Bollywood. <laughs> okay, only I saw one hand, but there's probably a few more. Because that's generally what people think. You know, they watch the movies, and um, that's just what they, and that's what, how they depict it in the movies. And, um, and even, you know, in Radha and Krishna's pastimes, the gopis and Radha and Krishna, all the leelas, the transcendental leelas of our, um, of the spiritual world also like that. So everywhere we turn, we think that that's what, you know, householder life is going to be like. And, you know, there's a small portion of it that potentially can be like that if we can follow the principles of accept, connect, and respect. So like Mahatma Prabhu is saying, accepting someone for who they are, not trying to change them, and not wishing they were something different, and not focusing on what they aren't and what they don't have, rather than what they are and what they do have. So that's accept, right? And then connect is making sure that we're always staying updated and in tune with how our partner is feeling and what they're going through and what their needs are and making sure that we can express our needs too, but in a way that shows respect. So when we can really make sure that expect and connect and respect are all there, then there is gonna be that really satisfying part 
of marriage. And that's why people get married. In this cold world of impersonalism and not being able to trust people and never know who has our back and you know, loneliness is like such an epidemic. epidemic. Um, you know, that is the, the longing, you could say, of, of the soul, where we really want to have that person who is now the terms are my person, right? Um, my soulmate. And, you know, to some degree, we can have that, but it lies so much in our lap as being responsible for making sure that we're behaving in a way that we are inviting that kind of respect, connect, and um, expect. At the same time, um, we want to be realistic and know that um, you know the movies, it's not like that. And marriage takes a lot of hard work. So we have to be willing to put in that hard work. And Can I say something? yeah, this is really interesting. You know what love is, in the material sense. When you fall in love, you know what happens. Does anybody know? It's hormones. Did you know that? That's like they've found out that when people fall in love they're more spaced out at work than someone who's smoking marijuana. <laughs> Have you seen that? <laughs> hello, hello? Uh, what, what, yeah. And they're always talking and, yeah. So it's a hormonal thing. You know when you connect with someone, it's like, we're, we have the same chemistry. And it's like, wow, I never felt so good in my life with this person, right? And so what do you think? You think this is like, that's the person, that's the soulmate, and it's going to be like this forever, right? And John is saying you have to work on it because when the hormones stop secreting whatever they're secreting and reality hits, if you want to keep it that high, you have to work on it. And there are things you, the things you have to do to keep it like that. And a lot of people think, no, it's just going to be that way, and if it's not that way, then I guess we should just forget it, you know. So I, uh, when I first heard that, I thought, this is so important. Because when that chemistry hits, it's like you think everything's going to just go beautifully forever. But it's the work that makes it go on, and the reconnect, the re... You know, when there's problems, recalibration, yeah and getting back on track. Okay, sorry for that. No problem. Um, yeah, so let me, let me rewind or dial back a little bit. I'm gonna jump around um, to this idea of the genders and the natures and because um, I was just reflecting on that a little bit earlier today that I don't think that men are difficult to understand. I just think it's difficult to accept them <laughs> as they are. <laughs> Because it can be so disappointing. For <laughs> well, I have, to, I have to say why she said we're not difficult to understand because there's only two things men want. is food, food and sex, and that's it. So they're easy to understand. I wasn't going to say that. But, um, <laughs> but, but let me give you some sort of analogies. Um, so a, a man's brain has these boxes in it. 
right? And each box, you know, has different aspects of their lives. And each box is very careful not to touch the other box. So they're all placed in there very neatly and organized, and none of them get connected or cross-wired in any way. They're just, you know, one box, another. And then one of the boxes is empty, and that's their favorite box, where they can just, you know, sit and, like, do nothing, <laughs> or sit and not communicate or talk or, you know, just be really... Oh, themselves and alone. I mean, I see heads nodding, so some of you might be like, what are you talking about? This is scientific. This is actually data. I'm not making this up. Now, a woman's brain is really different. So picture um, a house, a bigger house than most people have in London, um, <laughs> that has um, what we call in America an open floor plan. Do you know what an open floor plan is? So the house is big enough that you know, you've got your living room, or you call it a sitting room, and your dining room, and your kitchen, and um, whatever. And it's, it's just so big that you can actually create many spaces and rooms in one space, and they're all connected, right? There's no walls, there's no boxes, there's no um, demarcations. Things just flow and connect, and she's always moving and flowing and connecting. She wants you know, her husband to do that too, but he's, you know, in his little boxes. So um, that's part of the sort of biological challenge here, is to know that, you know, women want to talk about everything, women want to express themselves about everything, and men want to sort of just like figure it out alone in their box and not talk about it, and, and you know, the less, the better. Now, these are generalizations, right? So, of course, there are, are always exceptions to every rule. So I'm, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but data does show that, generally speaking, that's how it is. Now, this is really interesting. You want to do a skit? No, I want to tell something. <laughs> Plus, we don't have any skit plans. We could make one up. <laughs> That's okay. I'm, I'm sitting in my box and you oh, try no, to talk to me. That's <laughs> You go, what's wrong? Nothing. You want to talk about it? No. You sure you don't want to talk about it? No. Because the woman has to talk about it. And so she can't figure out why the man doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah, right? you didn't even need me for the skit. You did the whole <laughs> thing yourself. That was amazing. <laughs> Your own skit. But I have some really interesting um, data that I want to share with you, which, um, which can sort of explain, maybe not the man's brain, but why men, when they get married, they're sort of behind the eight ball to where the women are, right? Like women know how to generally, okay? We're doing generalization there. You know, they're good at cooking, they're good at cleaning, they're good at organizing. You know, they're good at just sort of interfacing and figuring out who does what. And, you know, they just seem to be, sort of have this domestic edge and communication edge over... That's because they play the house since they're three years old. Right. So here's the data that this is... Okay, this is studies in America, but I would imagine it's pretty similar for the UK, is that from the ages of zero till seven... Um, girls and boys 
often have a best friend, you know, like my best friend, of someone of the opposite gender. So it's very common for a boy and a girl at age two or three or five, just, yeah, my best friend's a boy or my best friend's a girl. But come age seven, that completely changes. And best friends are only of the same gender. And that stays that way till puberty or after puberty. And so what's happening, if you look on a playground, right, and you see girls playing and boys playing, here's what it looks like. The girls are playing group games. They're interacting. They're making sure that everybody's getting fed or getting their needs met or getting sleep or whatever the kind of game is. And the girls are really conscious and careful to make sure that everyone's okay, their feelings aren't hurt, everyone feels included. When you look at boys on the playground, their games are all about winning and achieving and succeeding, and it's all about me. It's not group-oriented, and it's not about what other people care and need. It's just about me and winning. So, so you have these boys and girls playing together, and the girls have a kind of um, emotional intelligence and social influence over the boys when they play together. And they sort of educate and teach the boys in this very natural, organic way about interacting and communicating and emotional intelligence. But that ends at age seven, pretty much. And then, the, so then, you know, fast forward, they want to get married and the boys are so behind the eight ball because they stopped learning all of those social skills from the girls. So they have a lot of catching up to do. And that's one reason that you'll find this imbalance or inequality when it's time to get together and, and start your family, just the two of you, and then expand and grow. The guys just don't know that much because they've been sort of deprived of all that education. And the women just have it in them. So there's a lot of catching up to do. I thought that was really interesting and explains a lot. Sometimes when boys come from fam, this is sometimes, families where there's a lot of girls, you know, like let's say a boy has five sisters or whatever, and it's a healthy, emotionally healthy environment in that home, he's, he's observing what his sisters are going through and he's interacting with his sisters that he might have an edge over boys who haven't been raised in a healthy, emotionally healthy home with a lot of girls because they haven't observed and seen and, and had to sort of work with their sisters. So that's also an interesting statistic. But the real point here is not to focus on the differences, but to focus on the similarities. And the real core of the need of every human being is to give love and to be loved. And that really is the essence and the core of every relationship. And so the more we can learn about how to give it to our partner, the more we'll be able and naturally to receive it. And that's what makes a healthy and happy relationship, is feeling heard, feeling understood, feeling needed, feeling wanted, um, feeling cared for, feeling like that person knows what we're going through right now and they care about it and they're willing to invest in, um, in our 
healthy well-being, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. What blocks that from happening? Is, are there some people that, like they get married and they're not actually able to do that? They're not evolved enough? Or... You know the answer to that. <laughs> you can answer asking, your own question. I'm asking you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody comes into a relationship with what we call, you know, their baggage, right? And with their, their good qual, their strengths and their weaknesses. So it really depends on what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. And some people come with a big deficiency. They have had bad modeling by their own parents. Maybe they come from just very dysfunctional backgrounds. Um, and so, you know, they just don't know. They don't how to, how to do that. And of course, of course, you know, that's not a curse. And it doesn't mean that everybody that comes from a dysfunctional background, which is most people in Kali Yuga, that means they can't do that because some people make very conscious decisions at very young ages when they've gone through some kind of trauma or they've experienced something that they, they obviously see is not right in the way their parents are relating. They think to themselves, it's, um, it's a very internal sort of private emotional experience and it can happen when you're four and you actually make almost a pact with yourself and you say, I will never ever be that way or do that when I'm an adult with my family. And people keep that. It's almost like a vow that you make to yourself. But not everybody makes that vow, and, and most of us just do what we saw or do what we were told. Or if our parents treated us with a heavy hand, that's how we treat our partner or our children with a heavy hand, even though we know it's wrong. So a lot of it is unlearning what we've subconsciously learned just by being in a family. So we have to unlearn a lot of what we learned and then relearn um, new things that are healthy patterns and habits and behaviors that can give us the happiness in our marriage that we really want and, and deserve. But it takes work, you know. We have to learn these things. Most people don't come into the world knowing how to be a good partner. Did that answer your question? Or do you want more psychological stuff? Whatever you like. Well, I'm done. I, so. res I respect you. <laughs> I don't have Whatever words you're to inspired to say. Yeah. No, but we see, <clears throat> sometimes, don't we see this like sometimes two people are really compatible, but one or both have some issue that just gets in the way of everything. And it's so, it, it's so unfortunate because they're, they're so good as partners, but there's just one thing. Yeah. And we have, have to be willing to acknowledge it, and for the sake of our partner, Whatever, however difficult it is to heal or work through this conditioning or how, whatever it is we're working through, we should do it out of affection for our partner. And, and a lot of times you don't even realize what you're like until you live this closely with another person. And they're like, why are you doing this? And like, doing what? So you always do this. Like, I, I never do that. No, you always do it. And like, no, we have no idea what you're talking about because there was never anyone that
that really cared that much or never anyone to show us. And then sometimes you think, oh, my partner's just finding fault with me. And you're doing something that's making the relationship difficult and they're not angry with you. They're just trying to show that it doesn't work. And if we take it as criticism or they're being offensive, that's a disservice to them because we're doing something that's upsetting them. And it's something, maybe like you said, maybe that's what my father did to my mother or that's what my brother did to me. And I'm not even aware that I'm doing it. So I see that as extremely important. Like you, you want to be, when you're in a relationship, for the sake of the other person, you want to be the best version of yourself that you can possibly be. Because if you actually love someone, you want to show up as the best you can for that person. And if you have these, these specific problems that can uh, affect the relationship in negative ways, I feel like it's, it's, it's unjust to not work on them for the sake of the relationship and the sake of the happiness of your partner. And I see this all the time. I'm like two perfectly matched people, but there's something that that's there that has to be worked on. And then the other spouse needs to be patient with that person. It's like, okay, I'm working on it. Just give, you know, I understand it. It's not easy. I've been this way all my life. And be patient and accepting and, you know, tolerant. And um, I think in, oh, what, what's the statistic? Like, like this amazing statistic about how much couples, the average couples disagree on in their marriage. 75 to 78%. Yeah. Can you explain that? What does it mean by they disagree? It just means there's, um, there's conflict. That there is no marriage. There is no happy marriage free of conflict. And let's say this. There, we call them solvable problems and perpetual problems. Right? So solvable problems are usually situational. And they can emote a certain kind of intenseness and upsetness and triggered, triggers, but they're usually based on a situation. And if the couple can sit down and rationally and respectfully talk about it, they can solve it. Right? But then the other percentage, which is in the mid to high 70s, are problems that are based on you know, the kind of nature that you have, your personality, the background that you come from. And those generally don't go away. They're just part of you and they stay with you. But you can still be in a happy relationship even with those unsolvable problems as long as you know how to deal with them and navigate your way through them so they don't get in the way of the goodness of the relationship. Can you give an example? Because I think <clears throat> I think in some relationships someone can focus in on one thing and think this is the deal breaker where many people with amazing relationships have that exact same problem yeah. but they don't they don't Yeah, so there's there's four or five issues that tend to that can often be what we would say are the unsolvable problems and they often revolve around things like money finances, um, how you manage the house, right? Cleaning and cooking, things like that. How you raise the children, um, how you deal with 
the parents and the in-laws. And um, there's a couple more. And so, you know, because we all come to a relationship with, with beliefs and opinions and really deep stories, you know, background stories about what this means to me, right? What does money mean to me versus what does it mean to him? It's, it's going to be very different. So when it's time to either spend or save or buy, it's, you know, we could really get into big arguments about that because let's say I came from a very poor background where my parents were just, um, you know, working so hard to make ends meet and, you know, we had jars on the kitchen counter where every coin would go in there so at the end of the month we'd have enough to pay the electricity and pay the rent and, and maybe sometimes there was no food so we ate, you know, bread and butter for dinner or, you know, something like that. So to me, you know, every penny or every whatever you call it, um, pence, I don't know what you call it, yeah, every pence counts, and I'm going to be so conscious of not buying new things until the old ones are really worn out, and about making sure that the light switch is turned off and on, and I'm going to save so that one day maybe, maybe the big dream of my life has, be, has been to own my own home, right? And then maybe he comes from like this much more financially stable background where you know, money wasn't a problem, just kind of came in and out. He never thought that he, you know, there was no awareness of, um, you know, the finances, right? Every, all the needs were met and, you know, all the education was paid for and anytime he needed something new. So for him, it's just like, you know, what's the big deal? I'm just getting a new pair of shoes or we're going to go on this holiday. And, and it's like, ugh. So we could just be at loggerheads discussing until, until really until we understand and feel the other person's pain, right? So if that was my story, what I told you, which it's not, but it's the other it way was, around. No, it's not. It's so not. But nobody was poor. It's not. <laughs> it's not. Um, so let's say, you know, that was my story, and it annoyed him that I was just so, maybe he called me stingy, or what are some other words of somebody who's, um, not cheap. Cheap. Yeah, like a Scrooge. And every time I didn't want to spend, and so every time he called me cheap or stingy or Scrooge, how do you think that made me feel? That was like a sword or an arrow in my heart. And it just made me feel so un misunderstood and unappreciated and unloved. And then it made me really resentful towards him. And then when I see him, I'd say to him, you're such a, um, you're such a spender. You're such a waster, you're such a, you know, insult for somebody who just spends money, um, that would make him feel hurt too. And so we have this whole narrative going on, this whole drama, this whole story where it's just like taking money out of that emotional bank account, withdrawal, 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 withdrawal. And then all of a sudden, that emotional bank account between the two of us is completely depleted and empty. And then we don't, you know, we don't even want to be together very much because we don't know how that conversation, or every time we try and sit down to sort finances out, it turns into this big blow up and he walks out and I walk out and I call my mother and he calls, you know, and it just turns into a big drama. So um, 
that's an example of how it goes. But so your point is that difference will always be there, but by understanding the backstory of why the yeah. person's like that, it yeah. doesn't have to be. So instead of calling me Scrooge, or instead of calling me, you know, whatever, what if he said to me, um, you know, what's the story behind that? Or, you know, what makes you feel that way? You know, what, um, you know, how come you, you feel so strongly about that? Tell me more about why you feel that way. Like he gets curious and inquisitive about why I am the way I am as opposed to critical and judgmental. So then I get to tell him my story and by the end he's, you know, he's crying. Oh my God, you ate bread for dinner sometimes and the electricity went out and it was cold and you didn't have any... You know, he's going to think so differently by the, by the time it's over. And then let's say I get curious and inquisitive versus judgmental and critical about him. And then he tells me his story and maybe he hadn't really thought about it before. You know, maybe he starts thinking, wow, you know, that I, now that I think about it, I never really had to worry about money. My parents never really even taught me the value of it. It was just always there. I just always had it. This holiday and that holiday. And, and, and gosh, it makes me feel like I should probably be more financially alert and responsible and conscious. And you know, so then the tables, the tides really turn and we can each really enter each other's worldview of finances. And, and, and by the end of that conversation, I can guarantee you, he's going to say, I am definitely going to be way more conscious of, of buying new shoes. And yeah, we should save. And that is a beautiful dream to own a home someday. I get that now. And, and, and then I'm going to be more understanding and, and tolerant and patient that, yeah, he just he doesn't know that life. He doesn't know that world. He's never had it. And so I shouldn't make him feel bad or guilty that he's never had to struggle, even though I have. So um, what happens is you meet, you meet somewhere in the middle, and you become much more understanding and compassionate and kind towards the other person. And then you don't have to fight about it anymore the way you did. It doesn't mean it's going to be solved, right? Because we already said these are unsolvable problems. But it's going to be a thorn in your side versus a machete in your side. And there's a big difference because you can, you, can, you can tolerate a thorn, you know, but a machete, you know, that, that oozes blood and makes you die. So it's kind of like that. Good. Thank you. That was good, wasn't it? It's really important. Yeah, it's time for questions. The past time for questions. Okay, Hare Krishna. So um, we do have the anonymous Mentimeter questions, but also if there are questions in the room, I would really encourage anyone who has a question to just put their hand up and I'll try and cover as many questions as I can. Um, what we've done is we've sort of grouped them by theme. Um, so we'll try this out. Um, so the first sort of theme is sort of just around understanding each other. Um, 
is kind of relevant to what we were just talking about. So, um, and some of the questions are similar to each other, so I may have like condensed them into one question. So please don't feel sad if it's not the exact phrasing. I'll just try and get the essence of the question. Um, okay, so first, the first um, question I wanted to ask um, is kind of a follow-on from um, what you were just talking about, the example you gave of where there's two kind of conflicting um, ways of being or like values. Um, and you talked about how you worked through that by uh, being curious and trying to understand each other. Um, what if you just feel like the other person's wrong? Like if you just feel like, I can understand why you're like this, but can you just change? <laughs> you want to answer it? You want me to? What would I say? I say maybe you can't change, but you can change the way you act. And I think a lot of people get confused about that. Like, this is just how I am. Okay, I understand that. Can you act differently? Because <coughs> sometimes you can act differently from the way you are. Okay, I cannot control myself. Like, every penny we get, we're going to save and we're gonna eat bread and butter for dinner. But we have like 10,000 in the bank. We could actually have rice, doll, and sub No, we're just gonna, you know, I'm like, I'm starving every night. Can you be compassionate? So, you know, it, you're like, okay, I'm used to bread and butter. You know, I've done it all my life, but I see your suffering. So, I'll, you know, even though it's gonna kill me to make that rice, doll, and sub I'll do it. So I think, that is a very important principle to understand. You, because we get in this like, well, this is just the way I am. Okay, fine, that's the way you are. But do you have to act that way? No, like I have a bad temper. Okay, I get upset, all right. Well, just when you get upset, go in the room and close the door, don't scream at me, you know. You don't have to do it, you know, or go, go outside and play basketball until you calm down or something. So this is just my feeling, it's not something I read, but if you, respect somebody and you respect the feelings of someone, then you're conscious of how your actions affect them. And so this is my nature, this is how I do it. And my wife or husband says, but when you do that, it's really disappointing or upsetting or whatever it is. She's like, okay, it's my nature, but um, I'm not gonna do it. I just read an article today. It showed up out of nowhere. And the article is seven reasons why surfing will destroy your life. And I used to surf. I'm like, okay. And I was just talking to a devotee. I said, you shouldn't surf. It's going to destroy your life. And one of the reasons it says is that surfing is, it's, it's, you can't predict how the waves are. So when the waves are good, you have to go because they're not always good. It's not like you just go another sport, do it anytime. As long as it's not raining, you can do it. So he said that for so many surfers, they've like missed, missed relatives' weddings and important things because the surf was good. And they could not control themselves. They said, it's not good every day. And surfing's an addiction, so it's a drug. So I think you can understand where I'm going with that. Sometimes it's just like, but I want to do this. I love to do this. this. This is so me. Yeah, but it's destroying your partner. Can you not do it? You can, even though you're not going to change. You'll always want to do it. But in that circumstance, you can just say, no, I won't do it today. Is that okay? Can I answer that? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
no one's wrong and no one's right in a marriage. Um, one of my mentors, very famous, prolific, um, you know, therapist, researcher, psychologist, you know, God practically in the in the field of marriage, Dr. John Gottman, he says there's no God camera and there is no one who's right and no one who's wrong, but the caveat is if there's abuse. And I just want to really make that clear. Like you, I know you didn't mean it this way, but you know, you have a bad temper, just go in the room and yell. I, personally, I, I say there's zero tolerance for any kind of physical or verbal abuse in a relationship. And if you're in one, you need to seek professional help immediately. So I, I do want to just make that point, that it, it's not good enough to say, oh, you have a temporal, don't yell at me, just go in the room and close the door and start screaming at the bed. That's not Okay, just go out and play basketball. Is that okay? Um, what? Go out and play basketball. Just no. don't scream at the no, person. No, just don't scream. That, that needs addressing. Well, like that, you said well, that, earlier, well, that's the other when issue. somebody has yeah. an issue and they yeah, come to the relationship, yeah. you need professional help. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, so, so no one's wrong and no one's right. And that's really one of the, you know, sort of million-dollar questions is, like, that, that's just so frustrating because you think your way is better and I think my way is better. And that's where something called accepting influence comes into the picture. And that's actually a principle um, of seven principles for making marriage work, which is be a being able to sit down in a rational, calm space with your partner and listening to them without judgment and criticism, with respect, and listening to why they think their idea might be just as good or even possibly better than yours. So, for example, um, you know, just a random one, you know, why we should go on our holiday to Alaska, right? I think we should go to Alaska, and you think we should go to the Bahamas, right? Seems like an easy choice, but, you know, out of respect, it's important that you listen to me, and maybe I have some really good reasons, like, we should go to Alaska because... Soon the oil wells and the drilling is going to happen and there won't be in Alaska. And the bears that I've been studying in college for all these years, they're going extinct and I've never seen one. And we have friends and relatives that have been inviting us for years, you know, whatever. And so at least hear my side and be willing to accept influence, right? And I will say, statistically speaking, men have a much harder time accepting influence than women. Men tend to just want to, you know, hand down the, the, the decision. This is where we're going, and this is what we're doing, and this is why. End of story. And women, statistically speaking, will just sort of bottle it up and just say okay, but they're not actually okay with it. And what happens is there's this, sort of volcanic eruption, or not eruption yet, but there is a little volcano, that, volcano that's starting to grow inside of that woman, and it's just going to continue to seethe and seethe and seethe. 
the more this happens and the more this happens, because she may not feel like it's safe to tell her partner, like, no, I don't like that, and I really want to tell you what I think. Um, it may not be safe, because she feels like he's just going to cut her down, you know, criticism, judgment, contempt, you know, verbal disrespect. Um, that's one big reason. Or she's tried it in the past, and every time she's tried it, those kinds of behaviors have come, so she's like, what, whatever, you know, as they say, choose your battles. But that is not the sign or the symptom of what we would say is a long-lasting, sustainable marriage. It's going to come back and bite you. It's going to come back and bite the person who is not willing to accept influence because a human being can only take that kind of sort of behavior and relationship for so long, and then the volcano one day is going to explode, and that other person is going to be like, what did I do? You know, so being willing to sit down and talk and give and take and receive and just listen is so, so important. You can agree to disagree. You know, at the end of the day or at the end of that conversation, I still believe in Alaska and he still believes in the Bahamas, but at least we have both heard each other with kindness and compassion and respect and, you know, it hasn't put us on the opposite sides of, of the boxing ring. We're still in the middle. We've agreed to take off our gloves. And then there are strategies that you would continue employing so that finally you could make a decision and both of you were happy with it. I have a question. Are you saying that if I can convince you to do something that I want to do, but I see you don't really want to do it, it would be foolish of me to force you because it's just going to, it's not going to be good for the relationship and there'll be some backlash later on. Like I should be sensitive if you say, okay, that's fine, but then I should sense if it's really fine because if it isn't, I should. Yeah, yeah. That's one but part But what of about it. with the woman towards the man? If the man's not fine with I'm it? I'm talking about both. It's, it's, oh, it's, it's a two-way street here, yeah. Okay. I'm just saying, statistically speaking, men have a harder time accepting influence. Women have an easier time just giving in. But it's not that... Um, they want to do it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's a note for the men. It's hard. It's it's it it's a little bit goes against the grain of a masculine sort of, you know, a manly nature to just all right, yeah, tell me what do you think about this? What do you have to say? Yeah. I'm willing. I so in my in my counseling work, I have this game that I that I give my clients to play. And I'm going to explain it real quickly. So the the premise is that they're um they've been on a ship They've been on a ship on a cruise in, like, I think it actually is the Bahamas or something, some, you know, tropical islands, and they're on a shipwreck. And, like, everybody on the um, ship has died except them. And there's, um, they can eat, there's a whole list of items. So they've, they've hit an island. They don't know anything about the island. They don't know what's it like, how long they're going to be there, nothing. But they know they need to get off the ship, and they have to get on the island, just figure out how to survive. So there's a list of maybe like 30 items, and they're only allowed to bring 10. 
So each partner goes through the list and they make their own 10 in order of importance. Then they have their list and they compare them. And they're sometimes the same, but rarely are they completely the same. And then they have to discuss, well, why do you think you know, the flashlight is better? Well, why do you think the cooking pots are better? Why do you think the rope is better? And it's really interesting to see who's dominating the conversation and who gives in and what, or if there's this real give and take and there's a lot of respect and, um, and then they have to finally agree on the 10 items and then, you know, theoretically go on the island and survive. And then we evaluate how the exercise went and each person gets to talk about how they felt in the decision-making process. And it's very um, revealing to see like how you are in your relationship how willing you are to accept influence and, and sort of listen with respect on what the other person believes and thinks and why. And of course, this is just made up, but you can imagine if it was a true story, um, yeah, how challenging it would be. Thank you. So I think, did someone have a hand up? Yeah, because she's not good. Thank you very much for your time and also thank you for the writing that you post the packs that you've made on this topic have been very, very useful to research. Thank you very, very much. And my question is on, like, the, I guess, any unique principles within our theology that kind of, like, put us in, a, in an advantage, so to speak, in the realm of relationships versus <coughs> Can I just repeat the question oh, just yeah. so that everyone hears it? Um, so the question was, and repeat, Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, if there's anything in our philosophy that sort of is unique that um, puts us at an advantage as opposed to sort of secular philosophy. Yeah, well, the obvious one is that we're all Vaishnavas. And we're supposed to be engaged in performing Vaishnav seva all the time. And if we're able to look at our spouse as an extension of and a represent, representative of our guru and of Krishna, and then there's, there's not any possibility, really, within reason that we would ever want to commit any kind of offense or ahimsa or you know, treat them ill in any way because we see them as a pure spirit soul and Krishna sent them to us to love and to care for and and to respect, and that however we treat our partner is directly linked to how we're treating Krishna. Krishna sees that. And so if I'm treating my spouse ill, if I'm treating him improperly, then Krishna doesn't feel good either. So we offend our partner, we offend Krishna. That's how I see it. You know, it's very clear. And... Um, yeah, that's what jumps out at me. That's everything, isn't it? Also, well, you um, know, it's like your home, your spouse, your kids, who do they belong to? So if you think they're all mine, you'll want to enjoy, exploit, control. And if you think they belong to Krishna, you'll want to serve. So that's what our philosophy offers, right? Right. 
that I'm a servant and I'm not an enjoyer. When you enter Grihastha Ashram with the idea, I will enjoy this, you've somehow or other, it's like something shifted, you know. You've learned that I'm servant and you get into Grihastha Ashram and now I'm going to enjoy all this. It doesn't work that way. You, you will enjoy it by engaging it, by serving it. You'll never enjoy it by enjoying it. It'll be enjoyable as it's, as it's used in Krishna's service. You can't be happy trying to take advantage of someone. And, and you know, there's this idea, you know, that men have big egos and they want to be served and they want wives who are submissive and this and that. And that's fine, that's a reality. But Prabhupada's talking about materialistic men. You know, we read and go, just see, honey, you know, I have a big ego. It says it right here, and you should just do whatever I say because I'm a man. And he's talking about materialistic men. He's not talking about devotee men. And sometimes we get that, you know, mixed up. So I think that's important also. And um, if, if I serve my spouse, as a man, if I serve my spouse, and I want my spouse to be this nice, humble, you know, just very gentle. That's how it happens. You can't force it. It's just like, why wouldn't they want to serve you? You're, you're taking such good care of them. It's natural. But you try to force it or demand it. You know, good luck. It's not, it doesn't work that way. And I think a lot of men think that, well, you know, I'm a man, you're a woman. So, you know, um, when you talk about marriage in the context of bhakti, then you talk about both sides being submissive, both sides being servants, both sides being, you know, chaste, everything, that those qualities. Like, why is it only women submissive, chaste, and this and that? But there are verses and places. No, it's men submissive, chaste, and servants also. And a lot of the macho men are like, no way, I can't do that. I would be, I would be too feminine. But it's not. It's bhakti. Well, bhakti's feminine, I guess. Both bhakti Siddhanta and Gorkhachor Das Babaji said that. This is your wife. You serve her. Wow. <laughs> you should know that before you get married. That's what you're, you're going to be doing. Okay. Um, so I'm going to do one more question on this topic, and then I'm going to move on to conflict and... Um, sort of issues. It's <laughs> a big one. Um, so uh, earlier on in your talk, you mentioned, you know, people come from different backgrounds. Um, they sometimes have uh, traumas or, or maybe they had an un, um, something about their parents that, they, you know, affected them. Um, so the question is, um, if you have that kind of trauma, um, do you think that you should work through it before entering a relationship or marriage? And is the best way to do that just by getting therapy? Yes and yes. At least be working on it, right? At, at bottom, bottom level, at least be working on it. If possible, before. And if you can't complete it, keep working on it. But ideally... You know, the more of a healthy person you are before you get married, that's what you're going to bring to the marriage. You know, whatever unleft business you have, 
you're also going to bring that to the marriage. So if there's no immediate urgent rush, which generally there isn't, we just think there is, right? We have some timeline in our heads that somebody else has given us or we've created for ourselves due to social pressure that we think, I have to get married by this age or I have to get married by this date or da 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 But really, you know, you're not ready. Just hit the pause button and just dive deep and get a lot of emotional, psychological support and do the work that you need to do so that when you come to the relationship, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm the best version of myself and I'm bringing that to this relationship. And that means that person's going to bring their best version of their selves and we're going to have a much higher percentage chance that, that we're going to make this work. And, yeah, I just think that's... that's Regarding nice. therapy, whatever... It may not be necessary always, but whatever you need to do. Some people often say, well, you know, won't chanting be enough? And I just say, is it? That, you know, do you answer your own question? If you're asking that question, I guess the answer is no, because you wouldn't have the problem anymore. Can you stand up here and show your T-shirt? just want you to see that. It says, husband in progress. What does it say? Please, sorry for the inconvenience. Is that what it says? Thanks for your patience. Yeah. I'll just read it for anyone who can't see. It says, husband in progress. Thank you for your patience. Do we have those t-shirts back there? A limited supply, man. <laughs> your wives would be really happy if you buy that t-shirt. <laughs> and you'll get their patience. <coughs> okay, um, Okay. so we, we can move on to the sort of conflict. Again, if you have questions that relate to this, either try and get them in on the Mentimeter or pop your hand up, because um, we'll be moving on, trying to get through as many as possible, so moving through the topics quite quickly. Um, so the first one is um, when a conflict arises between a couple, and it sort of seems small at first, but it starts to become larger. It's kind of what you were talking about, like these reoccurring problems. Um, how, do the, how does the couple support each other and work through that? Um, I think that's something we've had in other sessions as a question as well come up. Yeah. So I did partially go into that when I gave you the money, the example about the money. And so what you pointed out is very perceptive is that these perpetual problems, these unsolvable problems, they just keep coming up over and over. You can never make headway. And you find that each time you argue about it again, it's almost worse than the time before, right? There's, there's zero humor. There's a sense of just, you know, almost just no budging, no budging at all, and you just don't, have any sense of being willing to hear the other person. You think you're right and they're wrong. And there's sort of these symptoms that you can tell that, oh, yeah, this is one of those problems that's just not going to go away. So like I said, you really have to sit down in a time where you're both very calm and very rational and, um, you know, the phone's not going to ring and you don't have to be somewhere in 20 minutes and the kids are asleep, and you have time. And you take turns. 
You take turns talking about how you feel, the story behind it, you know, what's going on for you. And so that's like the speaker, right? And then the listener, their job is not to start compiling their response because they're not going to respond right away. They're just going to listen with so much. This is what we call satvagun. This is what being in the mode of goodness means, that you are 100% fully present. So eye contact, you know, you're not looking over there, you're not fiddling some item. You know, it's just you and me, and I'm fully here and present to take in what's going on for you. And then you Sometimes would even, yeah. when you want me to listen, you tell me. I need you to listen. Oh, yeah. Because she knows there's you. a 50% chance. Yeah. I won't. <laughs> I always have to say, um, put your phone down. Um, most of the time, he's got the phone in his hand. And he thinks it's enough just to not look at the phone. <laughs> but then I have to say, no, put it down, face down. You know, we have rules, but sometimes he forgets the rules. So I have to remind him. Sometimes so, he asks at the wrong time. It was like 400 emails, you know, like trying to get through in 10 minutes. So it has to yourself. be the right time. Yeah, right I, I have to say is now a good time, for sure. Yeah. So it has to be an agreed upon time. You know, you both agree, yeah, Friday at 7 p.m. We're going we're gonna to sit down and, and try and, you know, have a breakthrough. But I think this is a really good point as a man, and I've discussed this with other men. If you just, like, you know, a lot of times when women speak, men are like, oh, my wife's speaking, here we go again, type thing, you know. <laughs> it, it, you know, like I don't understand why she's saying these things. But if the wife says, no, this is important, I need you to listen, it's like, okay, it, it, it just gives us a warning that it's not just I'm just talking about I had a bad day or, you know, I ate an orange that was sour and I, you know, ruined my evening or something, you know, I'm like, okay, are we finished, you know, but no, this is important. So that, at least for me, that really helps. It's like, bring me, you know, I need you to listen. You or, to or she says, I want to tell you something, but I don't need a solution. I just want you to listen. So it's like, okay, now I can do that because I know that's what she wants. So that, I find that really helpful. Yeah, and so we're talking about conflict. And so um, make a date. You know, set a day, set a time. You both know what you're coming to the table with. Make a cup of tea. You know, just be relaxed. And then the speaker is just talking about their situation, their needs, their feelings. So it's more about them and less about you. Understand that every time... I say the word you, it, it, it sets off little um, like alarms in his nervous system and it makes him feel a sense of attack and defense. You did this, you did that, you said this, you said that, when you did this, you, you. So think, try to avoid you and think more about me and I. You know, I felt this. Um, for me, it felt like this. This is how I saw it. You might say you, but it's not pointing out something they did that in your mind was defective or wrong because that immediately sends a nervous system into a panic attack. And it's very hard for someone to listen to what's going on when the nervous system goes off like that. So 
then the listener's job is just to repeat back in their own words what I just said. So what you're saying is you felt uncomfortable when I um, you know, brought that story up in front of your mother and it made you feel embarrassed and you really wish I hadn't done it. Exactly. Um, and, and, and you feel that it happens all the time, right? Because we're talking conflict here. It does. So, so it happened. <laughs> so I do it all the time. <laughs> and you'd like, and you really don't want me to do it anymore, right? So, so then that person would say, yes, you got it exactly. Or maybe they'd say, yeah, and then you could say, but am I missing something? What am I missing? Or did, you know, is there anything else you want to tell me about that? Right? So then, like, until the person feels really heard and really understood, then it's time to switch. And then again, you use that same sort of method. And then um, at the end, because again, we're not necessarily going to solve a problem, but what we're doing is opening up meaningful, productive dialogue about the problem, and we're going to try and make headway. So the way you would end that kind of exchange is on a really positive, happy, loving note, which is to say something appreciative and something about them that you like or you're grateful for. And you just do do it for each other, at least one, and you could do more than you want. And then, you know, end the session, and it may be like, let me just think about that, sit with that, meditate on that. You know, you're not, it's not going into it solving it, but it's just opening up a window that was before, you know, shut closed that you could never open. I have, can I say, this is a message to the women. If you have an issue that you want to speak to your husband about, it's pr they'd probably rather get their tooth pulled and speak about it, which is why when you say, I want to speak about it, they'll say, can we do it tomorrow? Can we do it later? I have to go to the toilet. There's some, some response. <laughs> so there, um, a man's psychology is that, you know, the person he most wants to be respected by is his wife. And so when she says, we have to talk, it's like, okay, she's going to tell me all the things I'm doing wrong, which is like the last thing he wants, it's like, for him, that's like, I'm a failure, you know, he, so he wants, to, so, so women should understand that, and um, if you, as a woman, can make these conversations in such a way that by the end, he's like, wow, that was really good, I'm glad we did that, then the next time you say that, he'll be like, yeah, let's do this, it was really good, but if it doesn't go well, you're going to have a really hard time, so... Um, the next time. So just be conscious of that. That's like they don't really, men don't really like to do that unless you can make it so productive and so easy and painless that they think, oh, this is really good. We should do this all the time. And then, cause, because if you say, let's talk, I'm always like, yeah, let's, there's something we have to talk about. Let's solve it. I don't want to run away from it. But I wasn't always like that. Always, also, I, I would never say we have to talk because that immediately sets alarm bells off like you're saying, what did I do wrong? I'm a failure. So again, so the statistics say, okay, this is really interesting and it's very important to know that how you begin a conversation is how it ends. 
96% of the time, if a conversation begins off on a negative note, it goes down a rabbit hole and it ends on a negative note. Only 4% of the time can a couple sort of repair and rectify and, and make that a positive outcome if it begins on a negative. So the way you begin something is pretty much predicting how it's going to end. And if you know this is a conflict area discussion, then to say we have to talk is just like, uh-oh, you know, to the other person, male or female. So better to say, you know, something like, it would be so great, you know, it would really mean a lot to me, or I feel like right now we really need to have a conversation about this situation. Another thing is coming up, and it's been hard in the past, and you know, I'd really asking if we could have a conversation about this, and you know, when would be a good time. So you're very straightforward and honest about what it is, versus we have to talk, but it, it's not like a command or a demand, or you know. Can I add something from the male perspective that you could add to that? Like yeah. this is going to be good. You'll like it. Because I think you've done that before. So, like, it's like, this is not going to be heavy, or this is like, you'll like this, it's going to be good, it'll be helpful. Yeah. If you just hear that, it's like, okay. Yeah. But yeah. otherwise, it's like, you know, I'm going to get, it's like, I'm going to get chastised, and my ego's going to be, like, rubbed in the wrong way, and it's going to be painful. So just to say that, you know, this is going to be good, well, I think it'll really help us. It's like, because I think you've done that before, and it's like, I was like, okay. Yeah, sounds nice. great. Like but just, you know, we have to talk this. Like, yeah, that's scary. Don't say that. Awesome, uh, Ananda. Uh, I really want to challenge what you're saying because I really, I really like it, and I wish everybody could do this. <laughs> but I'm also seeing that it's really difficult for men to be very emotionally attuned. I mean, it's a generalization. There's lots of very sensitive uh, men who will be attuned to emotions, or women who will be willing to listen and willing to talk. But a lot of the times, what you get is you get a macho and a very sensitive woman who stops in, inside. And so, and, and the macho doesn't want to talk and doesn't want to listen. And, and, and any of that kind of, oh, let's talk, let's discuss, can I tell you how I feel? It's just down, 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 down a completely different road and, and actually makes it more annoyed and irritated. So you just rather like, I just don't want to make this an issue. And so you just stop. So, I mean, counseling, I would see that it would help, but even counseling would be a big step in that situation because they yeah. can't even talk. What would be a solution for that kind of macho and a lady who is used to being, you know, a lot of the times people growing up in devotee families or growing up in um, a certain male-female dynamic uh, that's very maybe male-dominated in the family. It's quite common, especially in the old, old days. That was a common yeah. model in the family. Yeah. And so women growing up would be not really willing to challenge and would be just more willing to accept them to set statistics, show them that's more, more common thing. Yeah. Not accept, but yes, stuff again without 
actually accepting it. <laughs> Just pretend I accept. <laughs> um, yeah, any kind of recommendation on how to approach that? So let me see if I understand the question. You're saying that the woman who's sort of sensitive and stuffed everything down and has a very macho husband and she's tried everything. She wants to have more meaningful, deeper connection and sort of a sense of give and take and um, collaboration and partnership in working together and making decisions and like that. And she, feel, and she feels that she's tried things, but nothing's worked, so she's sort of given up. Is that what, I just want to make sure I've got that right. Or she's just resigned. Yeah. I mean, I think she just has to try. And um, just do it with so much sincerity and vulnerability and honesty. So the thing is, when a relationship doesn't feel safe and sort of it, when it's imbalanced, I'm so afraid to say like the word equal because I don't, there's something, you know, equality and there's something like some taboo about that, but I don't mean it like in some weird women's livy way, but there should be a sense of equality. And when there isn't, it doesn't feel safe especially when somebody has tried to sort of, you know, bare their soul or, you know, say something and they get cut down. We call it criticized or, you know, there's contempt, very demeaning, critical sort of, you know, borderline abusive responses. You, you know, it just doesn't feel safe. So you're afraid to be vulnerable, right? Most people are really afraid to be vulnerable. But the interesting thing is that vulnerability can often be the key to turning things around. So for instance, um, you know, let's say I'm feeling really lonely and sad about something and I really want to tell my husband about it, but I'm like afraid because I, you know, he might just say something like, oh, buck up, you're such a sissy or something, I don't know. But but I do it anyway, you know, but I, I, I just approach him when I know it's a good time and I just say, you know, I just wonder if I could just share with you right now I'm feeling really lonely and really sad about, and it's not about him because you didn't do this and you didn't do that, or, but just about this or about that. There's a chance, and I can't say what the percentage is because I don't know these people, but there is a chance that you know, when you hear these powerful words and you see this person who you've spent years with and, and theoretically love, when you hear that, it's like, like, oh my gosh, my wife is feeling lonely and sad and, you know, I want to... And, and you could say, or whoever this person say, and I just really need a hug. You know, maybe they can't give you verbal reciprocation the way you want it because they don't have those skills. You know, a lot of times what we're not getting from someone that we really want is because they don't actually have it. But anybody can give a hug. You know, I'm feeling sad and lonely right now and scared, and it would just mean so much to me if I could have a hug. He's going to give that person a hug. And then maybe, 
you know, little tears will come and then there'll be like a little bit more of a tight hug. And like, you know, again, a window has been opened up. So generally these, th these things don't get fixed overnight, but we have to make cracks in the windows. And the way to do that is by expressing vulnerability in doses where you feel that the other person is able to receive it and respond. So not like, I'm, I'm sad and lonely and, you know, you can't say anything back to make me feel better. They're ill-equipped. And that's something we have to realize. It's their own lack of ability, but, but, you know, a hug or a, you know, whatever it is that you feel that you can get from them that they're able to give, that's a good starting point. I have another one I think is important. Sometimes they get through to a man, maybe also to a woman. It's just preface it with say, this is really important to me. Because like, with men, it's like, we don't know if it's important because you don't tell us. And we hear it and we think, why would that be important? wouldn't be important for me if I felt that way. I would just be like, whatever. But if you say, this is really important to me, and maybe you won't understand it because it's a female thing, but if you could just try to understand it, you know, like, you know, give them some preface. Like, this is, it's, it's a woman's world. Or for a man, it's, you know, this is really important to me. You don't realize it. When you do this or say that, it, it really hurts me. And you probably never thought like that because you think I'm made out of steel or something. And like, oh, and they'll say, oh, I didn't know that. So I think that helps a lot. It's just like, you know, prefacing a conversation can help a lot. I just want to add one thing, too. Let's say for this scenario with this couple. So the woman is very aware that she's feeling this sort of, let's say, emotional deficit, right, that her husband's not able to supply her with a kind of emotional support that she really hankers for, and he's got this macho thing, so she keeps, like, swallowing it and stuffing it down. And so one, another strategy to add to that is to think, what makes my husband really happy and satisfied? You know, what does he love? You know, what makes, what, what makes him feel the way he really needs to feel? Because I know how, what makes me feel the way I need to feel, but let me just turn it over and flip it back in the other direction, even though I don't feel like it, because I'm like mad at him, or I feel that he's not being this or that, but let me just put my own needs aside for a minute or a day or a week or whatever and just think, okay, I'm going to really invest in really tuning in to what he needs. Often we call this, you know, what's my partner's love language. But, you know, what makes him feel like competent and confident and like a good husband and a good father? Like, what is it? And then try that. You know, do that. Really invest with all yourself in doing those. They're little things, too. They don't have to be big, huge things. They're generally small things because what you're going to notice is that he's going to be surprised, too. Like, oh, she did that for me? That's unusual. And he might even not believe it. And he might even say, oh, that's weird that you did that. You never do that. And then it makes you like, oh, God, I tried. And he did. So... You have to just really suspend because we test each other. 
When you feel that there's a real deficit in the relationship and it's been there for a while, and then your husband or your wife does something nice to you, um, you don't actually, you're not able to receive it because there's so much negativity that that one positive thing is like, whoop-de-doo, big deal. You know, one nice. Like I have this couple that I was working with and actually they live in a cold climate and the husband, um, they had so many problems. So I'm working with them on Skype and they're in another country and they're going back and forth. And then he said to her, but I, I put the seat warmer on for you in the car so it wouldn't be cold when you went to work this morning. In his mind, he thought that was like such a big, amazing, loving, caring thing to do. And her response was like, oh, big deal, so what? But you didn't do this, and you didn't do that, and you didn't. didn't. And so the, the, the statistics show that one positive thing does not make does not compensate for five negative things, right? So we have to do five positive things to compensate for one negative thing. It's called the five to one ratio. So if we argue five times this week. No, one time, I should do five positive. Oh, excuse me, one time this week, and then I try and make up for it with one apology, if we have not really in a good space in our relationship, it's not going to do I have to do five things. So think of it that way. Like if he doesn't really accept it, it's, it's not enough because there's, so, there's such a negative sentiment going on there. So we have to really pour it on thick, you know, honey and maple syrup and all the sweet syrupy, pour it all on so the pancake is completely covered in sweetness. You can't just put a little bit. It, it has to be doused covered in sweet syrup, and then he's going to taste it and be like, ah, oh, that is delicious. We, so, have, to, we have to talk yeah. about math right now. So you have to do five things, right? So if you, bring, if you buy five roses, that's one thing. <laughs> but if you buy five roses and give one every day, that's five things. <laughs> Just so you know. And if you buy her a Mercedes-Benz, that's also one thing. <laughs> Maybe she might think it's five things, but it's not five million things like you think it is. It's like, I bought a Mercedes-Benz, I'm good for the year. <laughs> I can ignore her for the rest of the year. No, it doesn't work like that. Um, so I think we are sort of short for time now, and um, I know we really wanted to do a kirtan. Um, so we're going to do a kirtan next, but before we do that, I'm just going to do some quick announcements. Um, that was very smooth. Good job. Um, <laughs> okay, so we have a few more events um, coming up. Um, I'll start with the first one, which is the summer party, which is the Pandavasana Mentorship Summer Party. It's open to everyone. It's on the 9th of July, and if you haven't already signed up, I don't know what you're doing, so sign up. Um, it's, it's fun to get together. Um, and then the next session in this series, we're really, really excited to have Gauravani and his wife, Brinda Rani, um, coming and speaking to us on the 29th of July on the topic of 
getting to know yourself before you get to know someone else. So a lot of the similar kind of like themes that we've been talking about. Um, so please do come along to that. If you have any ideas or suggestions for speakers or topics, come and approach any one of us on the team. Um, that's myself, Ambarish, Renali, Leela and Rushab. Um, so come approach any of us. And I do want to just note, I know there were loads of questions we didn't get through. Every time there's questions left over, we take those questions and we try to sort of bring them into the topics for next time. So they don't go unnoticed. We're taking them down. Please just keep coming to the sessions and I'm sure they'll get answered. Um, there's just not enough time. Um, so I think, um, lastly, I wanted to say thank you to um, our amazing speakers, first of all, can we get three loud Harry Bowles from Mahatma Prabhu and Jana Vadasi? Arrivo! Arrivo! And um, I also wanted to say thank you to all of the various volunteers who have helped us to set up today and also to serve Prashadam. Um, there's quite a long list of names, so I won't go through all the names, but you know who you are and we really, really appreciate you. Um, if anyone feels inspired to help us clean up, we're going to try and do kirtan and, and we want to do as much as possible. So we, if we can get a really good cleaning crew, we could do kirtan a bit longer. We need to be out by 10.15, like super sharply. So um, appreciate any help with that. And uh, yeah, just move on to kirtan. Um, there'll be a bit qu quick changeover. <laughs> can I make one announcement? We're going to be doing an online marriage workshop in August. So can we just send you the information and you can send yeah, everybody? Yeah, we can circulate that for sure. And actually also to note that there, um, there are, if you're inspired by um, some of the things that Mahatma Prabhu and his wife have been talking about um, and you want to hear more from them, they have, uh, Mahatma Prabhu has a website. He, there's also some books at the back and um, some merch, like the T-shirt, <laughs> which is at the back available to buy. So... Thanks, everyone. That's, I think, all the announcements. Yeah. Okay, we'll go move on to Kirsan. Oh, cool. <laughs>